electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner, front and center this Friday, a top street strategist with a very big call on stocks, why they are poised to surge and by how much. You'll hear from him. We'll debate the call with our investment committee. Joining me for the hour today, Pete Najarian, Steve Weiss, Shannon Sakosha is the chief investment officer at Boston Private Wealth, and Jenny Harrington is the CEO and portfolio manager at Gilman Hill Asset Management. Let's begin where we always do, a check on stocks. The market continues to grapple with the virus numbers surging around the country. Dow right now down about 150. S&P is a fractional loser, down 11, a third of a percent. NASDAQ's up three, and the Russell 2000, we'll call that flat. Let's welcome in BMO's Brian Belsky. He's the man who made that call. S&P primed for a 15% gain next year. Brian, welcome back. Thanks for having us, Scott. Ambitious call, 4,200 on the S&P for next year. How do we get there? Well, we get there from this transition uh, back to normalcy. This is going to be a transition, Scott, that takes several months, if not uh, into the years, well into 2022. We see that the unprecedented price moves that we saw in 2020, we think are going to turn into unprecedented earnings moves in 2021. And we think financials, consumer discretionary and industrials are going to lead the way. We're maintaining our very big stance in terms of being neutral technology and communication services. We're neutralizing them for the next 12 months, but over the next three to five years, they're by far our favorite sector just in terms of growth. And we really think that this is going to be a turnaround in terms of earnings growth, especially the second half of the year. There's no doubt uh, that the vaccine is, is helpful. There's no doubt that stimulus is going to be helpful. But there's also no doubt that we are going to have more stay-at-home orders uh, in the United States. So, therefore, the stay-at-home stocks, meaning communication services and tech, are going to continue to do very well. And that's why we're positioned accordingly with respect to the money that we run uh, for BMO Wealth Management, both in Canada and the United States, in terms of still owning these stocks. So the bull market continues. We continue to believe that March 23rd was the control out delete uh, between the the cyclical bear that we saw, a 33-day bear, into the next 10 years of our 20-year secular bull market call that we've had in place since 2010. So we're bullish. We're more tactically a little bit uh, near-term bullish with respect to 2021. And then we'll see how this transition into more of an earnings-driven market into 2022-2023 means for returns. But double-digit returns in the second year of a new bull market are, are very normal. And it's all part of this transition, we think, into normalcy with respect to equities. You have to believe, though, that these are going to be backloaded gains, if you will, in 2021, right? We have to get across this bridge from here to the vaccine see how quickly it takes hold, how people return to whatever sense of normalcy really exists, right? Because it's going to take a while for all this to fall into place, Brian, before we can get that double-digit gain. 
It's a great point, Scott, and thanks for bringing that up. I mean, I don't think we add any kind of value to be making four- to six-week calls. You know, people that are adjusting their target for year-end 2020, I don't think that brings any kind of value to anyone. But I do think uh, that clearly the stay-at-home stocks in the technology sector in particular, and if you, uh, oh, you take a look at 40% of the market, communication services and tech, uh, and when growth is scarce, growth outperforms. So you are going to get a push in these stocks higher and the momentum in there, and that's going to drive the market higher. Remember, too, Scott, we're going to get a stimulus bill right after uh, the, the new president uh, is inaugurated. And I, I bet that there's probably going to be some sort of a piecemeal deal between now and then. The market wants stimulus. The market will get stimulus. Yeah. But in terms of the back-end loading, I think it's important. Back-end loading fundamentally, but price performance, I think, is going to be a fits-and-starts type market this year. But well, you, you said four to six weeks. You're not looking at four to six weeks. I'm not talking about four to six weeks. I'm, I'm looking even four to six months. When you have, when you have Brian J.P. Morgan come out today, and say that they see negative Q1 growth because of the virus, does that make you rethink in any way how you view the market? And it just speaks to what I'm talking about with this sort of slow move to normal. Absolutely not. Uh, and in fact, if you'll remember, I was on your market turmoil uh, show at 7 p.m. Eastern on March 23rd when the majority of economists in the world were saying that we're going into the Great Depression. And I told you that stocks were going to be up 40 percent as what I wrote on that on that day in a research report. You know, economic and macro data, quite frankly, has been dead wrong for mo for more than 10 years. And our macro modeling, for, per se, on the market has been wrong as well. So that's why we're focusing more on fundamentals on the bottom's upside. And I think the next 10 years is not going to be about macro, not going to be about quant. It's going to be about bottoms up stock picking, kind of return to the old days of the 80s and 90s. Wow. That's an interesting call in and of itself. Steve Weiss, you want to crack at Belsky here, our, our raging bull? I sure do. I, I sure do. And two questions. First one's quick, which is that have you made any type of bet in terms of whether the Democrats control the Senate meaning they control all of Washington, or whether they don't, because the world will look a lot different if Pelosi is casting a deciding vote. That's the first question. Second question is, I thought I heard you say that you're staying with the stay-at-home stocks and you're also going with the opening trades. Those, to me, are in conflict. Both can't work, as we've seen repeatedly. So clear that up, how you see that playing out. Well, Steve, I'm Polish, so I'll go in reverse order. If you look at our size and style uh, comments in the report, we're, we're equal weight growth and value. We're equal weight small, mid, and large because there are no discernible fundamental trends with respect to telling you to be in either one over the next 12 to 18 months, period, when you take a look at cash flow and earnings. I think you have to maintain your positions in the stay-at-home stocks, which, again, are 40% of the market. With respect to the move into value or cyclical, that fits into more of the broadening out from a fundamental perspective. In terms of, number one, we grab as a, as a group, Steve, in terms of putting out this year-ahead piece without knowing with respect to the quote-unquote blue wave in January. What I will say is this. We will adapt and improvise if we see a blue wave. Hon honestly, the, the makeup of your portfolio absolutely, positively has to change. If we have a blue wave, we're betting that we're not going to see that, and we have to position accordingly for the next 12 to 18 months. All right. Shannon? So thanks so much for this. Uh, you know, you talked about fundamentals. And so for those of us who sit here and think about fundamentals on a day-to-day -day basis, we've been um, definitely discouraged by the fact we've seen these quantitative factors dominate portfolios over the last few years. Where are there specific opportunities for that fundamental differentiation from a sector or industry perspective, in your view? 
It's a wonderful question. I think on a sector-by-sector -sector basis, you have to apply themes. So, for instance, themes in consumer discretionary are lifestyle. Yes, Amazon is the behemoth in the, in the sector, but you talk about Peloton and, and, and Lululemon, and TJ Maxx is a theme in terms of what's happening with respect to, to adding, adding things to our homes in terms of the home goods store that they have. Home Depot is a theme. Starbucks is a theme in terms of this whole lifestyle theme. In consumer staples, it's, it's staples retailing. Uh, is, is a fantastic theme. In industrials, it's going to be a combination of both domestic and international growth. And don't forget, we're probably going to get an infrastructure bill, and we're going to get some CapEx finally. And I think that's really the big tail there. So I think you have to look at a bottoms-up perspective in terms of themes. And we have to go back and look at products and services and earnings and valuation on a stock-by-stock -stock basis. I think that's how you're going to beat the market. You know, it's most interesting, I think, not necessarily, Brian, your call to 4,200. I, I think, you know, most people who are positive, the market in general could see a route to get there, you know, on the other side of the, the vaccine, I mean, other side of the virus, the, all of the pent up demand that that's going to be there. I do want to question you, though. I mean, you are going all in on the reopen with financials upgraded to overweight, industrials double upgraded to overweight and then technology downgraded. I can see why you would say industrials are gonna do great. Make the case for financials though, and also tell me why I'm supposed to not believe in technology n next year. Why, why is that not gonna work? I find that hard to believe. Uh, great point, but I think it's, it's too simplistic, Scott, because if you think about a sector, technology, at 27 or 28 percent of the market, you're going to maintain your position. That's a really big position, and we're going to do that. If you take a look at our sector weights, we're not we're not wildly overweight or wildly underweight. Listen, if I was a, only a portfolio manager, and that's my other job, I would be neutral every sector and just pick stocks. But we have to make a call with respect to the industrial call. We were wrong. We were wrong to be uh, underweight in, in August and September. That was the wrong call. And we think from a from a cyclical perspective, you have cyclical high PEs in cash flow and and return on equity beginning to, to recover. That's exactly when you want to buy a, a classic cyclical area. So we do think we're going to see a rapid rebound. With respect to financials, the world's most hated sector, for 10 or 12 years, we think our institutional clients around the world are massively underweight, these stocks still. And the, and the theme for financials, it has to be scale, Scott. Multi-divisional line of business, uh, uh, banks, asset managers, brokers, that's where we want to be. So the Bank of America is the world, JP Morgan's, Morgan Stanley, Goldman, BlackRock, those are the names to be in. Okay. Brian, I'm going to let you bounce. Um, I'm going to kick this around with uh, my group. It's good to get your opinion, uh, your voice on the show today. We'll see you soon. Thanks very much. All right. That's BMO's Brian Belsky joining us there. Pete, this makes sense to you? I mean, it's a very bullish perspective. Not, you know, I mean, you got 100 more points or so to get out of the S&P for 2020, but then you're going to get 15% more in 2021. A lot has to go right for that to fall into place. I totally agree, Scott, and it is an extremely bullish call. I think that uh, he makes some very good points, though. I mean, I, I look at some of these names, and one of the questions that you asked about the financials was, go from, my, from my perspective, was going to be what area of the financials specifically, and it seems like at the very end there he might, maybe did plug in, well, it's a, it's a combination of a lot of different things, whether it's the asset managers or the actual banks and so forth, but I think that sometimes, Scott, we oftentimes, I should say, um, 
put out too much and say financials. Well, what do we really mean by that? Because are we talking about banks? Are we talking about asset managers? Are we talking about what area of the financials are we talking about? Because they all can move differently. I've been expanding my financial portfolio for a while now. It's gotten a little bit bigger and a little bit bigger. I continue to want to look for other names that I think still have plenty of room to the upside. But I think that this is a bold call. There's no doubt about it. I, I appreciate also the uh, sort of the, uh, the, the stepping back and and understanding the miss on the industrial side, but then coming back with this double upgrade, I do think there's plenty of room still to the upside for that area as well. I think the industrials have plenty of space still to, to climb to the upside. And because of that, I think that combination of push from financials, industrials, and in my opinion, still some technology, that that, that call, as bullish as it is, is actually attainable fairly easily, I think. What if I told you, Pete, though, that J.P. Morgan's going to be right, <clears throat> that we do have a negative quarter to start the year? And even with the vaccine mm -hmm. coming, hopefully, not too long after that, what does the market do in that environment? Well, there's no doubt in my mind that we are, we are not out of the woods, Scott, by any stretch. And I think you've done a great job of outlining that, you know, week after week in terms of what, what we still have in front of us and the different uh, uh, hills that we still need to climb. But it doesn't mean that we, we I think we can still have some volatility. And then something like that would create some of that volatility because I do think we could sell off, but then off of that sell off. And then as things start to progress off of that, I think we could see sort of a, a, a pretty significant move to the upside off of that. But I, I don't disagree with J.P. Morgan's call because I think that is a possibility in the first quarter. OK, Jenny, I turn to you, somebody who always sort of takes a deep breath, sits back <laughs> and sort of assesses the, the situation um, in front of you. What, what do you see? So JP Morgan makes a really good point. And when they say that the first quarter might be weak, they specifically then go on to say that the economy will expand briskly, and you've put this up on the screen a few times, into the second and third quarters. And that's really important, is that that, that brisk expansion in the second and third quarters. And Scott, you keep saying that we need a lot to go right and a lot of things need to fall into place. But we all know that the market doesn't wait for that to happen. The market moves ahead of that. So if we take what Belsky is saying and we take what JP Morgan's saying and we know that the market will the economy will expand briskly in Q2 and Q3, then they're probably both right and we probably both have a, we have a pretty bullish setup ahead of us. One of the other things that I'm thinking about right now on this is the difference between sectors working and sectors leading. So as we talk about technology and Brian Belsky saying I'm going to neutral on that, it doesn't mean that technology is going to start to fail or do poorly. It just might not lead. And that's why he's neutral. It could continue to work, it could continue to go up, but I don't think it's going to lead the market up. I think it's just going to march along. Other sectors that he's upgraded, like industrials, financials, those might really start to lead. And they actually have been leading since the beginning of September, and then even more significantly this quarter. They've been leading, not just working, but leading the market forward. I feel like, Weiss, we, we almost need to have a conversation about the kind of two worlds. It's like the here and now, and how we're going to make it from here to January 20th, for starters. Um, could have a very messy situation between now and then, how the market's going to deal with that. Vaccine starts to get rolled out. You have the, you know, a Georgia runoff between now and then. If the Democrats win the Senate and you're able to get through whatever you want to characterize this transitional period as, the market is going to be in a really interesting place to try and figure out what the policy is going to be. I, I could easily see a negative scenario build for stocks 
as Belsky said, with the idea once again of this blue wave. Yeah, that's true. And I don't think Belsky's making a very courageous call. As a matter of fact, the most courageous call on this show is Pete wearing that vest. I'd say that what we're going to look at going forward is, uh, is a new indicator for the market. And that indicator is not going to be jobs. It's not going to be stimulus package. It's going to be how many people are taking the vaccine and when the vaccine gets rolled out. Those are the two numbers that we're going to see, production and uptake, because that's what's going to drive it. So it is a perilous period now, although I'm very bullish on the market. But if we get the blue wave coming on, on January 5th, and hopefully we get results that day, the sixth and latest on the Senate races in Georgia, you're very, very right. That could dictate market direction. The market is going to continue to look through COVID in terms of the escalating cases, the tragedy that's happening now in every state. But is it going to be able to do that if J.P. Morgan is right? Is the market going to be able to continue, Steve, I apologize, to look through COVID, as you say, as, I mean, my God, we may do 200,000 cases a day. I can't even believe I'm saying that number. But we're not that far away doing 185 (laughs) now. So you're going to get this escalation in cases. And then if it becomes more clear that consumer behavior pulls back, and J.P. Morgan is right, and you do a negative print in the first quarter, we have to start talking about going back into recession. The market's going to be okay with that? Well, no. Well, I think that the market, there'll be periods of volatility, translate that to selling off at certain points in time, and that'll be opportunities to get back in, because I think you're on the cusp with the vaccine again of a synchronized global economic expansion that we haven't seen as opposed to the global synchronized sell-off in the economy is the recession. So there will be some tough sledding. Uh, We're going to see the pictures more and more. But the memory of the investor is that, hey, if we sold in March, it was the wrong thing to do. Look at the recovery. We feel pretty foolish. So I don't think you test the lows. Could we go down 5 or 10% without question? But you don't trigger your tax bill by selling companies that continue to be winners. And I think it's technology that's going to win. Technology is not PCs and laptops. Technology is in everything we do, from cars, you just name it, smart cities, smart homes. So So I'm comfortable, but I can sit through the volatility. So Jenny, if you're looking a year out, let's say your horizon's a year, and the way that you view the market and the way that you invest for your your clients, why wouldn't you want to go all in, so to speak, on the Belsky plan of double upgrading industrials, adding there, finally thinking that financials across the spectrum are going to have a good run of it and go in there and other areas of the reopen and the cyclical trade. I think once you've set aside whatever cash, whatever safety net you need to make sure that you can get through the next year, no matter what happens, I think you do go all in on the Belsky plan or something pretty close to like that. I think that's what leads. I think that's, I think the, stu- the sectors and the companies that he's referring to, they are not up 25% this year. They're not up 12%. They're still kind of in the dumps and their valuations are reasonable. So you have this moat of safety built around it. So I think you do go with the Belsky plan. And just circling back to one other thing, getting us through this dark period where there are 200,000 cases a day, It is different right now than March. And Steve made a super important point, which is the investor memory. Everybody knows that it was stupid to sell between March 18th and March 23rd, and that you would have been better off buying. So I think that that keeps a floor on whatever fear ekes its way in. 
I also think the fear is going to be a lot less. I mean, I'm not hindsight's scared the way I was in March. I mean, you know, hindsight's 2020. Yeah, but it's also useful. But we learn from that, you know, and if we get it again really quickly, we're going to learn from that. It's just not as scary, right? And we've all also learned over the past eight months how to continue to live in a much more robust way yep. than we were doing in March and April your when point, everybody was scared and shut down. Your, your point's well taken. I, I, I'll give you that. It certainly is. You, you are buying a stock that is reflective of your point of mm -hmm. view as well. Fortress Transportation and Infrastructure. Can you tell us about that? It has a nice yield. This is really interesting. So the bulk of their business is in aircraft leasing and aircraft engine leasing. And it's complicated and it's messy. It has a really good yield. It, um, it's a company where you can't look at the earnings. You need to look at the funds available for distribution. And so it's really cash flow oriented. But it's neat because you can look at it and say, like, whoa, their business was impacted ne negatively from COVID. But, and I think this is what you want to do as you invest right now, you want to say, was the negative impact by COVID permanent or episodic? And in the case of Fortress, transportation and infrastructure, it was episodic. So as the airline industry crunched down, right, obviously the leasing came, came um, into and their earnings were really impacted. But going forward, not only is that likely to return to normal, but as the airlines are cash crunched, they're much less likely to buy aircrafts, to repair their engines, to buy new engines. They're much likely, more likely to lease and it's the same as when you buy a car, right? And you lease a car or buy a car. You kick the big cash outflow down the road by leasing. That's what they're going to do. So not only did they, um, did they survive this period, and this was the ultimate test of the strength of that business, but they've got a setup for very positive, um, positive revenues and cash flow ahead. I've seen so a nice, a really nice... excited about that and love the yield. Yeah, that's a nice move in the stock too as we're, we're having <laughs> that conversation. Shan? So I, I think that what we're talking about here, there's a very important point that I got out of that call um, from BMO, and that is we're not looking for a value rotation. We've talked about the need for breath across the market over the last six months or so that it couldn't be this binary rotation out of technology and communication services and into these cyclical sectors because one, it's gonna go back and forth just like we've seen over the last three weeks. The second thing that I want to drive home is that, and I think Jenny really hit the nail on the head here, is that we are in a different environment. We have this recency bias with what happened in March and April. What I would caution, though, is that I see more opportunities in the continuation of the manufacturing rebound versus relying solely on the consumer spending rebound. And so the difference between March and April and today is that in February, we had these massive manufacturing supply chain dislocations. And so we were extrapolating um, manufacturing meltdown for the next two to three years based on COVID-19. We're not seeing that. We're actually seeing reacceleration in the manufacturing economy globally. So I think that will help to underpin some of this weakness that we're going to see in consumer spending, which I agree with you, Scott, is going to be the biggest challenge over the next three months or so, is that this behavioral response to COVID is going to result in lower consumer spending. But I feel like between the sentiment tailwind, the fiscal and monetary tailwind, and then also this manufacturing tailwind, I think we are setting ourselves up for perhaps some dislocations, a smaller correction, but a rebound into the second quarter of next year. Pete, I want to talk to you about some of the things you're doing in the market um, because it's from a sort of broad spectrum of, of stocks, whether it's calls in, in the XLF or Marathon Oil um, and AMD, uh, and then IQ as well, if you want to tell us. 
Sure. Uh, you know, across the board, Scott, I think the one that uh, stuck out the most for me this past week that I have purchased was the XLF. And I think that, uh, you know, this plays right along with what Brian Belsky's talking about. These options did go out a little bit further in time, too. This isn't a one-week or a two-week type option. This actually goes through the end of the year. So um, just some big paper coming in there, Scott. And I like the flows. I like what we've seen out of the financials. I'm a believer. It broke away from that 25 in the XLF that it seemed to have had a magnet to for forever, it seemed finally broke up to the upside, and now it seems like we've got a little bit more runway. I think names like Marathon 2 stand out, and the reason they do is when I'm looking at the energy space, we are seeing so much option paper coming in there. And on a daily basis, I would say that we have four to five or six unusual option activities that are hitting on a daily basis somewhere in the energy patch. And so I think there are specific names that I think have a little bit more uh, leverage than others that that actually can move a little bit faster so that's why i'm selecting some of those i it's it's been a lot of fun iq is another one of these names is chinese name entertainment world uh that could make a nice move it took a hit pretty sharply to the downside this week i thought there was an opportunity there so i own some calls there so uh, just sort of playing across the board internationally as well as here and obviously in the oil space we've watched a lot going on of late, and we've started to see crude start to get back up towards that 42 level again. We're seeing a nice participation across the way, not just from Chevron, but from other names as well. Weiss, you added to industrials last week. I did. I did. I, you know, my exposure is so growth-oriented and so technology-oriented that I just wanted to get some exposure there. So I added LYB, Lyondell Basil, which is especially chemical producer. I think they'll do well. I had bought uh, Freeport, I bought SQM, which is another, they're more than just copper, Chilean producer. So I'm comfortable with those holdings because I think they'll continue to trend up going in line with the economic expansion that we'll see. So they'll be volatile near term, but I like them. And then I added to some existing positions such as Moderna, uh, which I've done in the past. My core position's intact, but every time the market gives you this opportunity on Pfizer news, you sort of got to take advantage of it. Stock got down to 88, which is incredible. And they'll report great news, as Pfizer did, and the safety profile is my view. Maybe it'll be Monday, maybe it'll be Tuesday, but it's coming. Yeah. Um, and I added to Jumia, which, uh, frankly, that stock's up 50% since I mentioned I got back in on Tuesday. So it's sort of just another day at the office, Scott. But, uh, but I think this company is going to continue to do extremely well. Investors are just becoming aware of it. It's the Amazon of Africa, and they'll be profitable, in my estimation, next year, which is an incredible feat. Right. I, I do, however, want to, I, I know you're we're joking around about it, but you were in this yeah. name, and you made a similar pitch, and then you sold it, and then you bought it back, right? Right. right? Yeah, that's correct. I, I right. bought it, and as I said at the time, it was, it, it was a speculative position. Right. And I hadn't been able, I'd done, I'd done all the work that I could do, but I hadn't been able to talk to the company because they were in their quiet period pre-earnings. I finally was able to speak to the company. I sold it on the earnings print because they were giving up sales for, uh, to keep the cost down. And I think that's a bad strategy when you're looking to build a moat around. But I spoke to them. I got big comfort in that. And now it's a core position. It's okay. actually slightly bigger than okay. a core position. So right. that's what I want to know. So it's a core position. It's a longer term holding. I'm, I'm trying to, you know. Yes. Um, you know, think about our viewers who heard you talk about it positively once, may have bought it, but then you sold it. Now you bought it back. So I just want to give them a, you know, a better idea of what your own horizon may be. 
Yeah, it's just keeping an open mind. I've okay. done it before. This is rather quick, but yeah, this is a long-term position. I got you. All right, thank you for that. Coming up, a bullish call on two gaming stocks that have both already surged triple digits this year. We're over here. That's next in our call of the day. And a reminder, you can always watch or listen to us live on the go on the CNBC app. We're back right after this. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Hi, everybody. I'm Sue Herrera. Here's your CNBC News update at this hour. Carnival Princess Cruises is extending cancellations of all cruises through the end of March. U.S. cruises longer than seven days are being put on hold until next November. Canada's health minister warning new cases could soar from 5,000 per day to now to 60,000 daily by the end of the year if people increase their daily contacts. Prime Minister Trudeau is warning the latest spike in COVID infections could overwhelm hospitals. A bit later today, Ontario is expected to announce new restrictions, including possible lockdowns in hotspots around Toronto. And in France, Black Friday sales are getting delayed until businesses shut by the current lockdown can reopen. The French government has gotten supermarket chains and e-commerce platforms, including Amazon, to agree to move the sales back to December 4th so smaller businesses can participate. You're up to date. That's the news update, Scotty. I'll send it back to you. I uh, appreciate that very much. Have a good weekend, Sue Herrera. You too. Bullish calls in the gaming space today. Piper Sandler initiating Penn National Gaming and DraftKings at Overweight. All right, Pete, I'm coming to you. You own Pen Calls. You own DraftKings stock. Talk to me. Right. I own the Pen Calls just because I've used that more as a trading uh, mechanism for me, Scott, as opposed to DraftKings, where I've owned the stock for a really long period of time now, multiple months going back, I think, back to the spring, spring months. But I think with Penn, the interesting thing is that, obviously, this, this whole leverage that they've got from Barstool, I, I thought that investment was brilliant. It opens up things for them. They've been, they've been there early. They're going to continue to grow. I think the growth has just started. And so because of that, this, this call makes a lot of sense. I think there's plenty of room to the upside. I just view this one, this one more as a trade. And I view DraftKings, I think, as, as a stock that has a lot more potential upside still, still for itself, just because of a lot of different reasons, but primarily because they were there first in sports betting and they're getting into iGaming and they're just exploding upon what they're doing with their database. So I think for that reason, that's why I preferred uh, DraftKings at this point in time. Wow. I'm coming to Jenny, Pete, because she has a bone to pick with you about this play. She says, and I'm <laughs> okay. quoting from the note, I'm quoting the notes. You can't hide from the note. I see low barriers to entry. Ripe for competition and valuations are unrealistic. Jenny, make your case to Pete. In addition, despite the fact that users grew, user profitability declined. And it was actually, and I am not a sports person, right? But I know it was a really good quarter for sports where like all the major things, baseball, basketball, football, all had their finals at the same time. So one would have thought that user profitability would have grown. 
I was thinking that it's a lucky thing I smile a lot and have a cheery face for what a Debbie Downer I am on so much. <laughs> yeah, so we wouldn't touch these with a 10-foot pole. <laughs> Pete, I'll give you the last Way word. too rich. Too rich? Well, I think the reality is this. Even though they, their opportunities were there, you point, you point out the fact that they had all these major sports, but think about all the sports that were getting canceled at the same time and all the movement that was going on and, mm -hmm. and all the disruption because of the virus and so forth. So I think there's something to be said for that. I think this would have been a better quarter for them if, if rather we were born a normal period of time where we'd actually have the college and pro football season not getting interfered with all the rest of it. So I, I understand what you're saying, but I still think that they're early on. They're the ones that are the leaders, and I think they're going to be the winners. All right, good stuff coming up. The stocks that matter most to hedge funds. Our Steve Weiss just added to one of the names on our list. But first, the check on the S&P sectors on this Friday. As we go to our wall, utilities, comm services are in the green. Everything else is in the red. Somewhat muted day. S&P's down about nine and two-thirds. We're back right after this. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one, which means we do the little things right so that we can keep our promises and you can keep yours too. That's what drives us. To learn how OD can help your business keep its promises, visit odfl.com. Old Dominion, helping the world keep promises. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. Welcome back. Goldman Sachs is tracking hedge funds' favorite stocks. Rahel has the list for us. Say, hey, Rahel. Hi, Scott. So the firm analyzed the holdings of more than 800 hedge funds with more than $2.4 trillion in equity positions at the start of the fourth quarter. A few themes here, Scott. So funds remain tilted toward growth and away from value, but began moderating those tilts ahead of the election and vaccine catalysts. Hedge funds now have their highest commitment to financials since 2013, though they continue to hold less than the sector's weight in the broad market. Industrial saw a large increase in the number of investors. Healthcare represented the largest net exposure for sectors at 21%, taking from consumer discretionary. Uh, talking names now, Scott, some popular stocks that hedge funds like Amazon, Apple, Facebook, Microsoft, and Google. Also names like Alibaba, Visa, and MasterCard. Amazon, by the way, the number one stock in terms of holdings for eight of the last nine quarters. And interestingly, Tesla was dropped from this list of popular hedge fund long positions, Scott. Yeah, it's an interesting list. I appreciate that, Rahel. Thank you so much. Have a good weekend to you, Rahel Solomon. Weiss, anything on this list surprise you? I'm not really surprised by much. Maybe Baba, but that's been a hedge fund fave for a while anyway. Yeah, nothing really surprises me. And I'm pretty sure that thinking about hedge funds, long only growth managers, you'd see a lot of the same list there. Um, 
I added to BABA. I'd added to it on the first drop, the ant drop, and guess what happened after that? Stock went down another 8%. So I added meaningfully yesterday. I was waiting for a bottom in the stock, didn't catch the bottom, but it doesn't matter today. The stock was down 20% when it corrected, all because Jack Ma gave a speech sort of attacking the Communist Party. So she said, hey, she, XI, not, not his wife, said, hey, Let's get this straight. I'm the boss here. I think you see the ant IPO come back, maybe in the next quarter, maybe the quarter after that. And the fundamentals are phenomenal. So I think it's a great buy right here. What do you make of, of health care, um, Shannon, as the largest net exposure? I, I found that interesting from Rahel's report. Uh, I did find that somewhat interesting. I think that there is this idea that there is going to be some differentiation within the healthcare space. I also think that there is this demographic tailwind that's occurring with healthcare. I think healthcare has been an underloved sector um, for the last four years because of the overhang of changes in the ACA. And I think everybody realizes that some form of the ACA is here to stay. And so now it's looking forward to some of those tailwinds, like I said, you know, in expanding middle class and emerging Asia um, that healthcare companies can benefit from. Big move we learned this week from Berkshire Hathaway into healthcare, the large drug makers, Pfizer, Merck, uh, we got AbbVie was in there as well. So it's an interesting time to talk about those stocks, which have done quite well. Ask Halftime coming up next. Send in your questions by video. We'll play them on the air. You can email us at askhalftime at cnbc.com. We're back in two minutes. All right, let's do it. Let's answer your questions. First up, a video one for Jenny on Walgreens from Frank in Pennsylvania. Hello, I'm Frank from Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. I'm currently long Walgreens, WBA, and I'm down. I believe Jenny Harrington is long Walgreens, and I'm interested in her opinion as I'm considering dollar cost averaging. Thank you. All right, Jenny, what should Frank do? Frank, this is such a hard one. On the one hand, you can look back to just a year ago when KKR was on the cusp of buying Walgreens for a $70 billion valuation. So you could almost say on a private market value, just a year ago, people thought this was worth twice what it was. On the other hand, we've seen real competition come in from online that really affects the front of the store sales. And then just this week, we saw Amazon step into the online pharmacy area. That's actually not going to have a huge impact on Walgreens sales, but it could start to impact a little bit more of the foot traffic, which would deteriorate even more the front of the um, store sales. So it's super hard. What I do know is that at eight times earnings with an 11% free cash flow yield and a 5% dividend, it is too cheap. But I don't know what the right price is. I just know that it's too cheap now with a 5% dividend yield. It's a heck of a lot better than a bond, and you probably have some upside. Okay. Jenny, thank you for that. Thanks for the question, Frank. Greg in Florida for Steve Weiss Skyworks. Buy or sell? It's a buy. Look at it this way. Skyworks, if you go back just a few years, 100% of their business went into smartphones. 51% of their business comes from Apple. Now, 30% of the business goes elsewhere. Your Peloton bike, Skyworks chip. Your autonomous car, Skyworks chip. Your private 5G network in 17 NFL stadiums, Skyworks chips. And on the Apple iPhone, the dollar content for Skyworks has doubled and is tripling. With the new, uh, with the new, you know, with the new accessories, and with also the new functionality, 
So you want to buy Skyworks, significant discounts on the market. It shouldn't be there despite growing much faster than the market. All right, Pete, got one for you from Evitz in Knoxville, Tennessee. BP or Chevron? You have exposure in both of Chevron stock, BP calls, and we talked about Marathon Oil. So you do have some exposure in the patch. What about these? Yeah. Yeah, I have some, uh, some uh, definite exposure in the energy space. I will say this. I think the reason that I have the stock in terms of Chevron is I think from a quality perspective, I, I think Mr. Worth does an unbelievable job. You look at their balance sheet, it's phenomenal. Now, are they struggling? Sure, they're struggling. Is oil dead just yet? Not quite just yet, Scott. So I think for a variety of reasons of these two names, I still think the quality name stands out for me as Chevron. I love BP. I think they do an awesome job. I think they've stepped it up uh, enormously over time, especially given the circumstances that they're all having to deal with as oil prices have been all over the place, but specifically closer to 40 bucks. Uh, I think Chevron's the name to own. Okay. Lastly, Shannon, I got one for you from Mike in California going into the holiday season. Activision or Electronic Arts? Mike, it's a great question. We're really entering into perhaps a super cycle for gaming here um, with Tailwinds being new consoles, this, the Christmas season. Santa loves to get video games for Christmas. Um, I think that for us, we like EA over Activision. This is actually my final trade maybe last week. Um, we like EA because there is that cash flow, recurring cash flow aspect of it through the Madden and FIFA franchises. Activision has Call of Duty, uh, but that tends to be more big hits, a bit chunkier on the performance side. So we prefer EA going into the holiday. Season. Okay, I got a bonus one for you, Weiss. It just came in, too. Um, it's from Joe in East Hampton. Why are you laughing, Pete? It's a serious question. It's from Joe in East Hampton, New York. Is Lulu a must-buy for the Christmas season? And we should note again that our own Courtney Gibson just joined the board of Lulu. But I think you sold. Didn't you sell the stock? I did. Um, I did. And the reason Pete's laughing is you need a sense of humor to dress like that. But here's the story with Lulu. I love it. There's a mode around the business. Courtney, Courtney going on the board is only going to be positive for that company. She's got great capital markets background. We know she's got great judgment on what makes a company work. But look, I equivocate in this. I think I'll get another chance to buy it. Like you asked on the consumer earlier, I think the consumer's not necessarily tapped out, but bored. How many more Lulu pants do you need? So, particularly, you're not going anywhere. So, love the company, love the product, don't really love the stock price. Okay. All right, Pete's unusual activity. It is still ahead, plus, copper prices hitting two year highs. We'll find out how the futures traders are playing that move. We'll do it next. Got a question for the Halftime Investment Committee? If you want to send us a video, we could play it on air. Email us, askhalftime at cnbc.com. It's time for the Futures Outlook. Copper on pace for its third straight weekly gain. Joining us now, Jeff Kilberg and Brian Stutlin. All right, let's talk about the fundamentals first, Brian, and then Jeff's going to give a trade based on that. Yeah, I think when you look at the fundamentals, obviously the story has been the vaccine and the reflation trade back in the economy. All the metals, aluminum, copper, the likes, all racing higher here. I think a couple things are going on. You look at Chinese PMI data, it's at its highest level since 2018. You look at U.S. construction up one and a half percent year over year. So there's real demand for the metal. That's pushing copper higher. I mean, I would like to see a trade above those 2017-18 highs before I start to buy it here. 
But if we get that, we really could be off to the races even further. It's had a tremendous run. We'll see what happens in the next couple of weeks here as we start to change over the presidency. Let's, let's see what the U.S. tariffs look like next year and whatnot. But that could be a trigger for copper higher. All right, Jeff, what's the trade? Well, I think if you look at this chart, and we've certainly moved a lot higher, this has really jumped in the month of November, about a 10% jump. It kind of is like Stephen Weiss and his Lululemon pants jumping around. But what is seen up here at $3.30, Judge, it looks a little exhausted. We like to utilize relative strength. And from a relative strength perspective, it's overbought. So I think you have to be a seller here short term, looking for a slight consolidation back to $3.25. But the trajectory of this chart is going to continue to move higher as long as we see the U.S. dollar cooperate in the 92s. All right, good stuff. Good weekend, guys. We'll see you soon. Coming up, unusual activity plus final trades. Miss the show? Don't sweat it. The Halftime Report now has a podcast. Market-moving interviews, call of the day, unusual activity, and, of course, Ask Halftime. Look for us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcasting app. And subscribe to the Halftime Pod today. All right, Pete, you're up. Unusual. What do you got? Uh, all right, here's the first one I've got for you, Snap. Now, this is a name that you've heard many times from us over the last couple of months, Scott. As a matter of fact, this year, Snap is probably one of the most aggressively bought unusual options that we've seen. We've hit five times already this month. So what are they doing now? They're buying this week, so they expire one week from today, the 27th of November. They're buying those. They're buying the 43 strike calls for a dollar. Now, they've bought about 5,900 of these calls. They've been buying and buying and buying. They just keep rolling on up, Scott. This stock back in the 20s was when they first started really hitting with a lot of unusual option activity, and it just continues on. This is this, just the very latest one. We've got Square as our second one. Now, these also expire next Friday, so it's going back to the theme of 2020, which is everything is very, very short-term. But they're buying the November 27th expiring 200 strike calls in Square, and they're pretty aggressive when you look at the numbers here. You've got 7,500 of those, and they started off at $2.70. They moved up to $4 on these calls. Stock was trading about a dollar lower than it is right now. I just took a quick look at it. So this is another one where I think we, in the next week we could see Square make another powerful move to the upside. This is another one of those names that's been hitting a little bit more frequently. It just hit on Wednesday, as a matter of fact, for unusual. So here we are once again hitting more unusual option activity today. Two stocks that have had really Really an incredible year. Pete, thank you. Appreciate really, that. Yep. Pete Nigerian with yep. unusual activity. All right, Jenny Harrington, it's time for your final trade. AT&T. If you're worried about missing out on the market, you won't have missed out on this one. Still down 30%, 7.5% yield, eight times earnings, and a really good company paying down debt. Somebody downgraded this thing to this week, I think, to a sell. I don't remember who it was, but there's been not <laughs> a lot of positive that. sentiment around it. We'll see if it changes, no. though. Jenny, thank you. All right, Shan. Uh, Martin Marietta, this is a construction aggregate company. Think infrastructure trade. Also think the population growth in Texas, as they have a big footprint in cement in Texas. So this is a good uh, cyclical buy here. All right, good stuff. Thank you for that. Steve Weiss. Jumia, they've got a full slate of investor meetings and conferences. People start finding out more and more about it. This stock has got a long runway in front of it. All right, what's the name for me, Pete? 
I'm going to give you a Lululemon. I think it's going a lot higher than, than uh, my friend Steve Weiss does. Right, good weekend, everybody. The exchange is now. <laughs> I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Imagine a beautiful afternoon. The sun is shining and you get to enjoy it all because you just sat down on your John Deere mower. The smooth ride lets you escape into your yard. Intuitive controls make you feel like you're one with the machine. And with attachments for every season, you can enjoy it all year long. We could keep trying to put you in the moment, but to really understand what it's like to drive a John Deere mower, you just have to get in the seat. Learn more at johndeere.com slash get in the seat or visit a dealer near you.